If you give yourself permission to prioritize your day and do the highest priority actions to fulfill what is most deeply meaningful, you will awaken your executive function, which will bring you an inspired vision and help you strategically plan a pathway, make you execute the plan spontaneously, and allow you to self-govern the amygdala from its impulses and instincts that distract you. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have a brilliant and extraordinary guest to share with you today. His name is Dr. John Demartini. He's a world-renowned specialist in human behavior, a researcher, author, polymath, and global educator. Dr. Demartini is the author of 40 books published in 39 different languages, ranging from personal development to wealth, education, and business. He has shared the stage with some of the world's most influential people, including Sir Richard Branson, Stephen Covey, Steve Wozniak, Robert Kiyosaki, Tony Fernandez, Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, and many more. He's presented to crowds of thousands and worked individually and collectively with entrepreneurs, board members, CEOs, managers, teams, employees at companies, including IBM, Shell, Merrill Lynch, and Maserati, Ferrari, just to name a few. He's also been featured in media outlets such as the Oprah Magazine, Larry King Live, Huffington Post, Mind Valley, Sky News, News.com. Au and more. Dr. John Demartini, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is an honor to have you with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for the intro. So there are so many different ways we could go, but what I want to start with is to kind of peel the onion back a little bit. What started you on the path that you're on right now? What was kind of that spark for you? When I was a child, I had learning challenges. I had a speech impediment from a year and a half old. I had to go to a speech pathologist. In first grade, I was told I was going to never be able to read, never be able to write, never be able to communicate effectively. Probably not go very far in life, not to mount much. I dropped out of school. I was a street kid. From 13 to 18, I pretty well lived away from the house. Lived in bowling alleys, diners, parks, whatever. I made my way to California because I picked up surfing. Texas wasn't the surf capital. Went down into Mexico and surfed there. At 15, I made it over to Hawaii because I was good at surfing. I lived under a bridge there, then in a park bench, a bathroom, van, car, and finally in the tent. And surfed every day, but almost died. Almost died at, right at 17 going before 18. And luckily, a lady found me in my tent or I wouldn't be here probably. We were taken, that lady took us to a health food store to get some food in me. And leaving that health food store, I saw a little flyer with a guest speaker. Now, I never went to classes because I had learning problems. But something intuitively said to go listen to this man. 
It was at Waimea Bay. And I went to hear this gentleman named Paul C. Bragg, who spoke for about an hour, who, after he spoke, inspired me to such a degree that I thought that night that I listened to him, that maybe I could overcome my learning problems. Maybe I could someday learn how to speak properly and read properly and become intelligent. And that night was the first time I ever thought that was possible after listening to him. And I made a kind of a, a commitment that night that someday when I'm his age, I want to inspire a young, young person like he did me. And I saw a vision of me standing in front of a group of people and speaking properly. So I then studied with this man for three weeks and learned as much as I could. And then eventually flew back to Los Angeles, hitchhiked back to Texas to try to go and return and see if I could go back to school. I failed at first and I almost gave up. But my mother saw me crying in the living room floor and said, son, what happened? And says, well, I failed the test. I got a 27. I needed a 72 to pass. I don't think I'll be able to read or write, communicate effectively or ever mount to that or go very far. She said something to me that was that I really needed at the time, which probably only a mother could say. She said, son, whether you become a great teacher, philosopher, and travel the world like you say you want to do now, whether you return to Hawaii and ride giant waves like you've done, or return to the streets and panhandle as a bum, I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do. With that moment of unconditional love and certainty and gratitude, my hand went into a fist and I said, I'm going to mass this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to mass this thing called teaching, healing, and philosophy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being on the face of the earth stop me not even myself. And I had this determination in a way that I couldn't describe. And I got up and hugged my mom and I went into my little bedroom and I found a Funk and Wagnalls dictionary and I started memorizing 30 words a day. And my mom and I we used to practice spelling them, using them in a sentence, getting the meaning out of it until my vocabulary was strong enough to be able to make sense out of the, what I was reading. It was a slow, tedious process, but with 30 words a day, it gets going pretty good after a while. And eventually, I ended up passing. I started excelling. And then I was more determined. A lot of kids were there just to have some fun. I was there to work and to learn. And I started to excel. And I started reading 18 to 20 hours a day. You know, not even months later, my mom asked me what I wanted for my, my birthday, 19th birthday. I said, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth, the greatest writings humanity would ever have from the greatest minds of ever lived. She said, you sure you don't want a t-shirt? <laughs> I said, no, mom. So she contacted her brother, who was a professor at MIT. And as a gift, he sent two giant six by six by six foot wooden crate storehouse filled with thousands of books. And they were put on a flatbed truck onto the ground. And I went out with a crowbar and opened up those crates and filled my room with books. And just started reading all day. Any field, every discipline. And I wanted to find the most universal principles that applied to all the disciplines to build a foundation of knowledge that I could share with people. Anything to do with human potential, anything to do with human awareness, anything to do with the involvement of human consciousness, anything to do with maximizing a human being's magnificent life, I wanted to know. And that solely graduated to having students ask me questions, to gathering in libraries that have classes there, 
to when I went to the University of Houston, I used to have 100, 150, sometimes 400 people asking me questions under the trees every day. When I went on to professional school, I had classes seven nights a week, and I was speed reading by then. When I graduated from that, I, I never stopped. I started giving classes pretty well seven days a week, and I just kept growing to the city. I then opened up doorways for radio and television. That opened up doorways to speak at conferences. That opened up doorways throughout the state, United States, all but two states I've spoken in. And eventually taken me to speak to 154 countries now, around 300 plus speeches a year on average. And I, uh, people ask me, why do I do it? And I said, because I can. So I have been for 48 and a half years since the night I met Paul Bragg, been on a mission to learn every single thing I can that would assist human beings in doing something extraordinary with their life and share whatever research uh, points to that would help them. The story you just shared is so powerful, and I'm grateful that you that you were able to articulate it the way that you did. I was taking notes, and one of the things I wrote down and underlined and circled universal principles that you, you know, you get your crowbar into those boxes and you were tearing into these, these works of literature to find these universal principles that go across all disciplines that help people become the best versions of who they're meant to be. Share with us, if you could, some of these universal principles. Going back all the way back into philosophy, <clears throat> there's one principle or law that stands pretty steadily. It's called the law of the one to many. Mortimer Adler, who wrote The Great Ideas, the great, from the great books by Britannica, Syntopic in Volumes 1 and 2, have a chapter called The One and the Many. It says that from the one comes the many, from the many come the one. Now, it has thousands of applications, even into neurology. Radiation starts from a point source that's kind of an infinitesimal and radiates out to an infinite number of radii, one to many. Gravity goes from many to one. So we have a gravitational part of our nature, and we have a radiational part of our nature. And we're grateful, and we're inspired, and we're living congruently with what we value most. We tend to radiate outward and expand. We become intrinsically driven to want to expand our nature. When we are living in lower values and distracted in our amygdala with impulses and instinct and extrinsically driven, we tend to contract. We want immediate gratification instead of long-term vision. So we have a gravitational nature. When we are one radiating outward, that has been called our unconditional essential self or authentic nature. When we're going the other direction, we're inauthentic and it's our existential self. And so those are many personas and masks that we wear that cover up our true essential nature. So there's an application between the one soul that the theologians described and the many personas that we express. When we infatuate with somebody, we minimize ourselves. And that minimized persona is not us. When we resent somebody, we exaggerate ourselves with pride, and that's not us. When we love somebody with reflective awareness and equity, we have authentic selves. So in the moment of love, as Empedocles said, when we have a moment of love, we're the one essential self. When we have judgments and strife, we have many fragmented selves. 
in, in society, you have also the one in the many applied to sociology, the monarch and the democracy, the one and the many. And if you go towards the one, you tend to forces towards the many. So if you get a monarch that becomes tyrant, a rational tyranny, it tends to break down with revolutions. Or if a company becomes an autocrat, it ends up having a union to get back into the many. Nature is constantly striving to have an equanimity and equity between human beings to try to help maximize sustainable fair exchange and transactions in society. So the law of the one to many is one of the most universal. I could probably go for a day on just that <laughs> one law in its applications. In chemistry, you have nucleophilic and electrophilic substitution elimination reactions. One's unifying and one's dividing. In reduction and oxidation in chemistry, you have the same mechanism, one gaining and losing electrons. Gaining is moving towards one, losing is moving towards many. Almost every field in physics, mathematics, in chemistry, in any field, this law has been applicable. So if I know that law, I have the ability to discern uh, subjective bias data that dialectic individuals tend to impose on the, on the research so I can be able to filter out information and know when there's bias and try to get as objective as I can. So that's just one of the laws. There's also the law of transformation. The law of transformation is that, and, and this was described by the time at Heraclitus, and was also described by Parmenides. Uh, Heraclitus basically said that there's, there's an eternal change, and everything is changing. Uh, it is never in second by second the same universe. You never put your foot in the same river, in other words. Parmenides said it in the opposite manner. That even though there's a change, there's a conservation of all energy and matter. Now, he didn't use energy and matter, but he said there's a conservation. That means that there's a, a change in form, but the actual energy and matter is changeless. And they both came in from different angles. But this law of transformation requires that you have to build and destroy a neuroplasticity in the brain or a muscular plasticity or bioplasticity in the cells. There has to be a build and destroy, a reduction in oxidation, an alkalinity and acidity, a mitosis and apoptosis. There has to be a building and destroying in order to evolve a transformation in life. That's why we have pride and shame, a builder and destroyer in our psyche, maintaining an equanimity to try to keep us authentic, but building and destroying, remodeling us and adapting to a changing world. So this is a, a second principle that uh, can be applied. But there's a series of principles that apply in 299 different disciplines, believe it or not, you can find them. And those are the ones that I wanted to build a base of psychology on and philosophy on and physiology on. Because physiology, inside the cell, there are microtubules that are forming and deforming, literally disassembling here and reassembling here in a kind of redox reaction on a large molecular level. So you have... A, a constant transformation. And I'm a firm believer that uh, at the level of the essence of our real nature, nothing's missing in us. But we're sometimes too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside us. And therefore, we think there's things missing. And we're expecting to live in other people's values futilely. We're expecting other people to live in our values futilely. And therefore, think that there's a some sort of a thing that's not working in the universe. But as Mapertius says, in his laws of least action, that everything is most efficient, but it's our awareness that doesn't see it. And once we ask new questions, become cognizant of the unconscious information, become fully conscious, we see the hidden order inside the apparent chaos. 
And then we appreciate the transformation that's essential for our evolution. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. I am so enjoying our conversation, and it, it's, it's fascinating because of the research you've done. I want to jump a bit back into your story because by now, you know, you're 20-ish something, and you've read God knows how many books. At what point did the light bulb go out to where, or go off rather, to where you said, okay, I've identified these principles and I know you've only shared with us two, but I'm sure, I know there are more, to where you were able to then say, okay, I'm going to take this knowledge and I'm going to break it down and synthesize it to where I can create a platform for others. How old were you when that started happening for you? Well, I don't think it's a point so much I mean, there's a point, but there's a, it was a gradual involvement. It's an incremental momentum building process. Really. I was sitting at Wharton College. I was in the library reading and I was on the floor and I had just finished doing some yoga. I was just stretching and um, was sitting on a little mat that I had, a little towel mat, and was just in reading a book. And this 375 pound Afro-American woman came up to me. And she said, I saw you. I saw you moving. Can you teach me whatever that is? And so I, I looked at her and I thought, there's no way this lady's going to do yoga like, like myself because I was skinny as a rail at the time. But she had a spirit, an inspiration to want to learn. And so somebody that actually asked me for help was the most invigorating thing in my life. So I had her as my first student. And I was 18. And I had been doing yoga since the night I met Paul Bragman. I took up yoga class. Then a gentleman saw me meditating out, outside at the college. And he was sitting there having his lunch. And after he finished his lunch and I came out of the meditation, he came over and says, can you teach me that meditation thing you're doing? And he was a Persian gentleman. And that was 1973. And he's still a student. He's the longest student I've ever had. I haven't seen the African girl. He's a doctor today. So he asked me to teach him meditation. So what I little I knew about those two topics, I started teaching. Then I was living in the library and made kind of a commitment that I was going to go through those books in that library. Kind of a crazy ambition. All of a sudden, a whole class got out that was part of a mathematics class, just basic algebra. And I was studying and they asked if they could gather around and study with me. I said, sure. And they started asking me questions. And I started to share what I knew. And it seemed that I was more interested in learning it than I was passing the test. They were just cramming for a test. I was learning too. I wanted to learn. And I remember I was sitting there with 16 of those students. And one of them whispered to another one, to his friend. And he said, that damn Martini, he's a freaking genius. And I started to get a tear in my eye because 
Paul Bragg told me the very last day I ever saw him, I stayed with him for three weeks. The very last day I told him that I don't know how to read and I have learning problems. What do you advise me to do? And he looked at me and he says, that's the only problem? I said, well, yes, sir. He said, that's not a problem. I want you to say this one statement to yourself every single day and promise me you'll say it every single day for the rest of your life and never miss a day. Say, I am a genius and I apply my wisdom. So I, he made me say it over and over and over again until my eyes closed, patted me on the shoulder and says, that's it. Don't you ever forget that. I've never missed that. Every day. When all of a sudden a kid said to me in the library, months later, almost a year later, that Martini is a freaking genius. It brought a tear to my eye. I thought, I wonder what would happen if I said other statements to me. And I really got clear about what I really want to create in life. I got clear and kind of a checkup from the neck up and really defined what I want. And I'm really committed to it. Not a fantasy, but what my life is truly spontaneously demonstrating that I do. And that night I went home and I wrote. And I have that original piece sitting here. Not the original writing, but the actual content sitting in front of me. And I wrote 23 pages of a nonstop internal dialogue about how I wanted my life to look. I spent the evening writing that. I thought if that one statement can make a response like that, I wonder what would happen if I filled my day with exactly how I wanted to be. And that I'm a master of persistence. I can do whatever it takes. I have a photographic, autographic mind, whatever I read or retain. And I just started to say things the way I envisioned it and what I was willing to work towards. And I started saying that every day and memorizing it. You know, Paul Bragg said that what we think about, what we visualize, what we affirm, what we feel, what we take actions on spontaneously impacts our destiny. We can, we can be a victim of history. We can be a master of destiny based on whether we choose our path or respond deontologically to the duties of the external world as a herd father. And I basically decided that I wanted to take command of my life. At 18, I, wanted to, I said to myself, I want to master this thing called life. And then I defined the mastery of life as creating original ideas that served humanity with original creative ingenious ideas that were usable in the world. I want to create a business that serve people and globally. I want to have financial independence. I want to have a global family dynamic, which is one of the reasons I live on the world, the ship. I want to have social influence. I want to have a physical vital body or 67 amounts. I'm still working 18, 20 hours a day. And I um, wanted also to have, you know, an inspired life, the demonstrated exemplification of an inspired life. I set out and designed how that was to look and what were the action steps and kept refining it and working and looking at what worked and what didn't work on a daily basis and standing on the shoulders of the greatest minds that ever lived and what they did and how they did it. And I'm absolutely certain that a human being can do extraordinary things if they take command of their life. We're not victims of history unless we decide to be. We can be masters of destiny. It's not what happens to us on the outside. It's what we decide to do with it, how we perceive it, decide our decisions and our actions. So I set out really momentum building. It wasn't just one moment. It was just a series of moments, but a lot of series of moments along the way that's led me to be as inspired today as I was that day. That's so beautifully said. And so now we're here in 2021. Share with us you know, what your vision then that you believed you were going to create. Share what it looks like today and how you're helping people today. Well... There was no social media, really, other than TV, radio, newspapers, magazines. 
so I sat there. I, I knew I wanted to step foot in every country on the face of the earth. I've spoken in 154 countries. I still got another 60 to go. I positioned my life to live on the world, which goes to every country where there's water, to increase the probability of me actually being able to get to those countries. I have been relentless in the pursuit of speaking as much as possible in as many countries as possible. But now with COVID, we've done it with Zoom. In the last year, we've, we've reached people from every country in the world, millions and millions of people. So 300 million last year we reached on speaking on Zoom. So I'm absolutely certain that, that if somebody pursues something with a no turning back perception, something that's so deeply meaningful that whatever happens, it's on the way, not in the way in their minds. You have your vision and bigger. The reason for doing it is bigger than any obstacle. The obstacle turns into an opportunity. I'm a firm believer that if one pursues that, that the relentless pursuit is something that is inspiring, that's magnificent in your consciousness. Synchronously attract people, places, things, ideas, and events that allow you to manifest that on the planet. So today, I research, I write. I've written now for 1,500 newspapers and magazines around the world. And I write constantly, and I research constantly. I'm writing a new book. It's a 1,200-page book on philosophers of the ages. I do everything I can to try to study everything I can to be able to deliver as much as I can to serve as many people as I can. A 1,200-page book sounds very interesting, to be sure. I'm curious if you could share with us, you know, over the past number of years, you, you mentioned those couple of people that you met well, you know, 19 in school. What were some of the most or some of the other most striking and memorable transformational stories that, that have touched you where you've helped people change their lives? When I was uh, 14 years old and I hitchhiked to California, I left Houston. And the uh, first night I stayed, well, the first evening I was in Austin. And I went to the Armadillo Club where Ted Nugent was playing, rock and roll band. And I met this hot chick there. And we went backstage and hung out with Ted Nugent. And those days, it was the free love days and the get stoned days. That, so that was my first night on the road, hanging out with Ted Nugent, the rock band. That night at three o'clock in the morning, I hitchhiked off towards, towards El Paso and to Cal go to California. I fell asleep in a Piggly Wiggly truck and missed my turn at Junction and ended up in San Angelo, Texas. And I got sidetracked there for a while and I had to go to Midland to get back on the road to get to, to El Paso. And I got to El Paso. I was a bit trashed from the all-nighter. And I was walking through the downtown area because the Highway 10 wasn't finished, Interstate 10. And as I was walking through town, I had a surfboard, a headband, some sandals, a Hawaiian shirt on. And I looked pretty out of place in the West Texas town of El Paso, Texas, where there's cowboys. Cowboys and surfers didn't go along. As I was walking down the street, three cowboys that were not liking surfers confronted me on the sidewalk and lined up across the sidewalk and wanted to let me pass. I knew I couldn't outrun them. With my board, I knew I couldn't go in the street and I'd get run over. I couldn't go in the shops. So I had no choice but to, to respond to them. And for some reason, I decided to growl and bark like a wild animal at them. They call it a pattern interrupt today, probably, but it just came to me. And I growled at these guys and acted like kind of a crazy guy. And these guys moved aside and I walked right through them and I growled at them. And as I did, there was a guy leaning on a lamppost, laughing his butt off. He just saw what happened. He's probably 62 or 60 something years old. And he turned around and he put his arm on me and he said, that's the funniest dang thing I've ever seen, young man. 
you took them cow folks like a pro. Can I buy you a cup of coffee, sir? I said, no, I, I don't drink coffee. Can I buy you a Coca-Cola? And I said, yeah, you can do that. So this old man took me to this little malt shop and we had a Coke together. And he said to me, are you a runaway? And I said, well, sort of. I guess you could say that. He says, going to California, huh? I said, yeah. You look pretty strange with a surfboard in El Paso, Texas. But if you're passing through, it, I understand. Are you through with your coat, sir? I said, yes, sir. He said, then I want you to come with me. I want to show you something and teach you something. And there's a little part of me that was a little hesitant, because sometimes you run into some interesting characters on the street. But something said, you follow this guy. So we walked a couple blocks, two, three blocks, and then another two, three blocks to the right. We walked up the steps of the downtown El Paso library. At the front entrance of the library was this little old lady at an information booth. And he asked the lady to keep an eye on my stuff as we walked in the library. That's everything I owned, and I didn't want to give it up. But she assured me that it was safe here. Not too many cowboys are going to steal the board. We walked into the library, down some steps, through a hallway area, up some steps, onto an area, and sat down at a table. He said, young man, have a seat here, and I'll be right back. He walks off to the bookshelves, comes back, and put two books in front of me. He then sat catty corner to me on the corner of the table, and he said, young man, there's two things I want to teach you today. And you've got to promise me you'll never forget these two things. I said, yes, sir. He said, number one, sir, is don't you ever judge a book by its cover. He said, because it'll fool you. You probably think I'm some old bum on the street. But young man, I'm one of the wealthiest men in the world. I have everything that money can buy. I have ships and planes and businesses and homes. I have everything that money can buy, boy. Don't you ever judge a book by its cover. It'll fool you. I said, yes, sir. And in my mind, I'm thinking just some old guy in the street. Then he took my right hand and he stuck him on top of the two books. It was Plato and Aristotle. He said, young man, you, you learn how to read. You learn how to read. Because there's only two things they can never take away from you in your life, and that is your love and your wisdom. So you gain the wisdom of love and the love of wisdom. And don't ever forget that. Because nobody can take that away from you. That's the part. They can take away your possessions. They can take away your loved ones. They can take away those things. But they can never take away your love and wisdom. So you gain the wisdom of love and the love of wisdom. You learn how to read, boy. You understand that? You, under, you get that, boy? Yes, sir. Okay. Put the books on the shelves. He walked me back out. He led me to where I needed to go back to, off to California. I later found out that, that that gentleman was Howard Hughes. Holy cow. He was doing an El Paso natural gas deal on that day in 1968 for a brewery he was building in Austin, Texas. And I ended up meeting somebody in his family many years later to research this out and find out who it was. He wasn't joking. He just happened to be on that corner that day. So I've met some amazing people, probably 3,000 different influential celebrity people in the, over the years. I'm, I'm seen to be at the right place at the right time to meet the right people to make the right deal. And uh, so I, I've been very blessed. But I firmly believe that whatever you see in other people, regardless of what it is that you admire or despise, instead of putting them on pedestals or pits, go reflect and look inside yourself and find out where you have whatever you see in them. And through reflection and an equanimity state, you'll discover that that hero and villain is an expression of your own projection. And then you realize that it's nothing out there at all. It's part of you that they're bringing to your awareness. You can embrace all parts of yourself. Until you can master and embrace the hero and the villain, the saint, the sinner, the virtue, and the vice within, 
you will be plateaued by whatever repression you're unwilling to embrace. So I'm a firm believer in honoring both sides of myself. I have no desire to get rid of half of myself or get rid of half of other people or half of their nature. I'm a firm believer that the world has a hidden order to it, a balance of opposites, to build and destroy. The moral hypocrisies block us sometimes from a more profound awareness, an overview effect as a cosmonaut and astronaut would see the earth. And I'm a firm believer in, in waking us up, up to a greater awareness. The greater the awareness, the less we have a narrow-minded judgment and live in strife. And the more we are able to appreciate and love the magnificence that's going on. I'm a firm believer that there's a, there is a, a magnificent hidden order in life that if we ask the right questions and become mindful, we get to awaken to. And that, to me, is the fullest expression of the human condition. So beautifully said. I, as I'm reflecting upon that, it, it's so interesting because you're so well known in the personal development space and so many people in that world talk about essentially ridding yourself of those parts of you you don't like. And your approach is quite different. Embrace it. So I'm curious, you, you said that, you know, it's all about asking the right questions. So somebody's listening to this that light bulbs going off over their head, wow, this really resonates with me. What are some of these questions we should first start asking ourselves to really be able to embrace both parts of us? Well, first, 36 or seven years ago, I uh, noticed that whatever I was saying to other people was sometimes for me. As Chomsky said, we're, we're not talking to others for communicating to others. We're talking to others to find out what we need to hear sometimes. So instead of waiting for me to find people that I would react to and seek or avoid. I decided to go to the Oxford Dictionary, which is the largest dictionary I could find, and underline every behavioral trait that I could find in the dictionary. I found 4,620 human behavioral traits. Kind, cruel, nice, mean, pleasant, unpleasant, considered, inconsidered, honest, dishonest, et cetera, et cetera. All the complementary opposite synonyms and antonyms of human behavior. I then thought each one, one by one, neurotically, thought of who do I know that expresses that trait to the fullest, the most extreme. And I'd put their little initial out to the side. And then I would reflect inside myself and look inside and say, okay, John, go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating the same or similar specific trait, action, or inaction that you're judging and seeing in them. And where was it? When did I see it? When did I see it? Who did I do it to? And who perceived me doing that? If there was a perceiver outside. So I would have some sort of transparency. Because it's easy to lie to ourselves and cover ourselves and protect ourselves with our pride, but the transparency helps us become more real. And I went through all 4,628 human behavioral traits and found out that I had every one of them. I was a, sometimes a thief. I was robbing people of time that was valuable to them. I was sometimes a, a murderer. I actually was killing personas by helping them become aware. And they're running their life with a persona. And all of a sudden, I broke it. And all of a sudden, they had become authentic. But a persona died. So I started looking physically or more metaphorically of all the ways I could display and demonstrate these behaviors. And what I noticed is that instead of me being hooked by infatuations or hooked by resentments on other people, I calmed myself down and realized that I'm just seeing a part of me. And if I don't respond, it means I can own that. And then I took those same traits and the things that I thought 
from my moral instruction was good or bad. I looked for the downsides on the goods. I looked for the upsides on the bads, and I neutralized it myself out. Because as Montaigne said, he traveled the world looking for a universally ascended value system never to be found. What was good over in this country is bad over in this country. You know, South Africa, they, the president had nine wives. In America, you go to prison for it. So you have, you've got these pairs of opposites that are syncretically divide, developed across the world. It's like a quantum entanglement of po- opposite value systems making up the world, making sure that there's a build and destroy and a transformation on the planet. And that's you typically find them and marry those people. That's what's funny about it. You, the purpose of marriage, as you know, is not happiness. The purpose of marriage is to find someone you can delegate low priority things to. That's supposed to be a joke. I went and owned all those trades. And then I noticed that my response to other people was way more centered, way more poised. And I didn't get hooked by a resentment. And then I started to look and I go, hmm. Instead of projecting labels on people and using a subjective bias and taking it into absolutes, which is the most primitive and most narrow-minded philosophy, I, I wanted to look for where is the opposite behavior from my first impression on somebody. So if I think somebody is very cruel, a cruel person, I look at where are they kind? And I noticed that it would be unconscious. If I asked the question, go to a moment where and when I perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating the exact opposite trait of my initial projected value and label, I discovered that inside my own awareness, it's there. And that calms down the, the, the labels and the projections that I have on them and makes me see them as a human being. And I, I believe that every human being is a total human being, a whole being, an individual that's undivided. And so we, with our subjective bias and our filters, block out with unconscious ignorance the information that we're choosing not to see. And that's a survival projection instead of a thrival honoring of the individual. So the question you ask then is once you identify where you have it, then you ask, okay, go to a moment where and when you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating this specific trait, action and action. You're there, okay, where are you, when are you? At that moment, from that moment till today, how is that trait that you despise? How does that benefit you? How does it serve you? How is it helping you in your journey and helping you fulfill what you value most? And helping you spiritually, mentally, career, financial, family, social, and physically. And be accountable. And you will find that everything has a way of serving if you know how to look with the eyes that are broad. And then I discovered that this, my anger of the things I resented or my infatuation and my joy or elation, I calmed down and centered myself and realized that they're just a human being trying to teach me what I haven't loved inside me. And so I found that these questions, I have 80 questions that I ask myself to make sure that I'm poised and present and purposeful and prioritized and more empowered than reactive. You know, I guess you could say living in strife over misinterpretations and incomplete awarenesses about these magnificent things. So well said. My goodness, there has been so many pearls of wisdom you've shared with us, and I'm so grateful for all of them. Our time has flown by, but as you know, I I wrap up each and every episode by asking my guests this one question. What is your biggest help in that one most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? Everybody has a set of priorities, a set of values that they live their life by. And all those, those those are evolving. At any one moment, they're filtering how you perceive, decide, and act. Whatever's highest on that value list, you're spontaneously inspired to act on. It's the most fulfilling. 
your ontological identity revolves around it, your epistemological pursuit of knowledge revolves around it, and your teleological purpose revolves around it. If you give yourself permission to prioritize your day and do the highest priority actions that fulfill what is most deeply meaningful, you will awaken your executive function, which will bring you an inspired vision and help you strategically plan a pathway, make you execute the plan spontaneously, and allow you to self-govern the amygdala from its impulses and instincts that distract If you will prioritize your life and fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, your life won't fill up with low-priority distractions that don't. Your self-worth will go up. Your space and time horizons will expand. Your leadership that's sitting innately waiting to emerge will surface. Your willingness to pursue and solve problems in the world that inspire you, instead of having to deal distractively with problems that don't, will emerge. And you'll make a contribution. It's an original idea that will be a genius and innovation, and you'll be an unborrowed visionary instead of a borrowed visionary, creating a culture instead of following a culture. And you will actualize your life instead of just realize that you're an animal running around in a circle in a wheel. So I'm a firm believer that if you prioritize your life and give yourself permission to shine, not shrink, and serve, not feel, you know, as a victim, you'll be master of destiny, not a victim of history. I love it. I absolutely love it. Tell us where people can connect with you and find you online. They can just simply go to drdmartini.com. And on there, they could spend the rest of their life. They'd have to to be kind of like a Buddhist with more than one life just to keep up with all that's on there. It's an educational website. And also on there is a value determination process that's free. It's private. It's 13 questions that you ask yourself to discern what's really, really important to you. What does your life demonstrate? So often, if you ask people what their values are, they'll tell you social cliches and and imperatives that are injected from outside authorities instead of looking and reflecting and being honest. This exercise helps you discern what's really, really important to you so you can start structuring your life in a way that empowers you. So drdmartini.com and take the time to do a private value determination and do it a week from now, a month from now, every quarter from now. And I am certain that will help you discern what's really priority and what's important in your life so you can fill your day with things that are meaningful instead of things that are so much value. And for those of you at the gym, we got you covered. Everything Dr. Demartini will be linked in the show notes for this episode at dailyhelping.com. Well, we are at time. Thank you so much for coming on today. I loved the stories. I know everybody listening to this too. It was an honor having you on the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the questions. Absolutely. And I want to thank each and every one of you who chose to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go give us a subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because that is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. Mm -hmm.